I know each of us continue to be thankful for the opportunities that are granted to us to assemble in the ways that we are, such as this evening. It's such an honor and a blessing to be able to gather, as was just announced in prayer a moment ago, without official interference, to gather in a time of peacefulness and safety, and with the opportunity and the desire of our heart to express our heartfelt appreciation to the God of heaven, who not only has seen us safely to this point, but we certainly long that he will continue to see us safely in the days that are ahead of us. As you may have already noticed, tonight will be October's installment of questions and answers for this current calendar year, and we're certainly always thankful for the questions that, that, that you submit. Certainly, I'm appreciative always for them, and I think we all look forward in some ways to appreciating more deeply and more interestingly some of the features found in the Word of God. Certainly, that'll be true tonight, and at this point, this introductory slide is merely a rather simple one that continues to remind each of us that questions are an important part of the Bible. There's over 2,000 questions in the Bible. In fact, as you give thought to some of them, admittedly, some of them are rhetorical. That is, the answer is in essence built into them. But there are many others, of course, that really are tremendous teaching tools. Tonight's questions, no doubt, will also fall into that category. One of the last things on that slide is a reminder that the reason we do this each month is we're convinced, absolutely convinced, that the Bible does have the answers to so many of the questions that in fact may well cross your mind and mine. It is with that said, let's turn our attention to the first question of the evening. As usual, let me simply read it the way it was worded so that I don't mistake or in any way missuggest what the person may have had in mind. Discuss the role and work of deacons. Several months ago, we had a lesson connected to elders. At that time, I thought that we would do somewhat a later one this year on giving some consideration to the deacons. And yet, this question has in fact been immediately raised. And so, quite frankly, this would have been no doubt a part of what would have been shared during that message or that lesson which I had in mind back then. We would be quick to say that under the banner of texts like Colossians 3.17, you and I would wish to do all things according to the authority of the God of heaven. For whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks in the God and the Father by Him. That surely would include not only other generic features of the church, but certainly the matter of its government. And you'll notice that we're about to discuss somewhat of the role and the work connected to the deacon. I chose to list it on that slide before you in some of the ways that look like this. You may wish to be turning to 1 Timothy chapter 3, for many of our comments over the next moment or two will in fact surround matters that are found in that chapter. It is a rather well-known chapter of the New Testament in that it presents not only the qualifications of elders, but also the qualifications of deacons. And as a part of those qualifications, there are several things that are needful for our discussion about their work. Beginning in that same chapter, verse number 8. Likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience, and let these also first be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, 
faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well, purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Now, among the matters that we have just read, certainly I've selected a few which are highlighted on that slide that's now before you. But first of all, it would be fair to observe the very nature of the word deacon and that which it suggests. The original word is diakonos, and it has to do with one that's a servant. There is certainly a very real sense in which all of us as Christians are servants. We seek to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. But may I be quick to point out that the New Testament also uses the word deacon to describe an office. And you may have noticed twice in the reading that you and I just listened to a moment ago. It says again in verse number 10, the office of a deacon. And then again in verse number 12 and 13, the office of a deacon. So although it's true that each of us as Christians are servants, we are diaconesses, if you please, at least in that regard, it is still nonetheless the case there is a rather special office that Jesus Christ has selected and put in place in His church. So it's true there are certain individuals that then may occupy that office, and these are the ones, I take it, that were the subject of this question. As far as the office and the work of a deacon, you may first of all notice on that slide that deacon is one who, as the name would suggest, serves the church in a rather particular or special way. And I say it that way for this reason. The deacon is not an elder. The, de the Word of God makes clear distinction between those two. And so the deacon is not an overseer. He is not one who is described in that same way that elders are. But rather, he is an individual who, as you notice, is the husband of one wife, so must be a married man and must have children. But you'll notice that this person, this gentleman, this deacon, is thus given by the elders a particular work over which they have a degree of latitude. That is to say, they ensure that it's done. They have a work for the benefit and blessing of the church, which they are then to appreciate. As far as an example of that, would you look back with me to Acts chapter 6? As we revisit that particular chapter, we find a rather memorable episode in the days of the early church. Without reading the fullness of that, I hope to just point out a few observations, if I might. It's probably one that's rather familiar, as you keep in mind that here, there were some widows that were being neglected in the daily ministration. In fact, verse number 1 will merely identify that in this way. And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. And so you and I can well imagine that there was a particular program, if I might call it that, in which those ladies, those widows, whose needs were certainly rather very much present, but they were being met by a particular set of presentations due to the efforts of the church. But the fact is, the Hebrews, although their widows were being served, there were some Grecian widows that were being overlooked. The King James uses the word neglected. Well, what might be done about that kind of a problem? 
you'll notice what quickly was highlighted next, the twelve, called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not meat or reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. You can well tell then that the apostles had this rather interesting approach. Although we could invest our efforts and time in order to see to this rather interesting oversight, far more needful is it that we continue to give our attention to prayer and to the other matters of the Word of God. You look out among you seven men that we may appoint over this business to ensure that widows are not being neglected and to ensure that the service connected to that program and effort is carried out in a way that would be suitable and fitting in light of the Word of God. In fact, beginning in verse number 5, we have a listing of the seven men that were selected. It's a rather fascinating thing to note their names. These men had Grecian names, and otherwise they were quite familiar with the ladies that were being neglected. And they appeared to have been those who would have been acutely able to see that that need was being met. But do you notice at least the pattern? The apostles were the ones that had a charge over the entirety of the church there in that locale. And they thus delegated some authority in regard to this work to these seven men. And they carried it out. And they saw that it was in fact fulfilled. May I suggest perhaps in that text a bit of a pattern for the nature and characteristic of the work of a deacon. There is a work that a congregation needs to ensure that gets done. Whether it's checking over their facilities, whether it's seeing to the needs of those members that are in need, whether it's some other educational or perhaps evangelistic program. Maybe it's a program connected to edification of the saints in some way, but whatever the need is, the elders of that congregation have seen fit to appoint one or more men that are thus as the deacons to serve and to give thought to that kind of work. You may notice near the bottom of that slide that there's an interesting feature of an adverb that appears in that text you and I just read. It has to do in verse number 3 with the word that is recorded as daily. Again, verses 1, 2, and 3. In other words, elders have the oversight and those that serve as the overseers of that congregation, but in their vision and in their wisdom and in their desire to look out for the souls of that flock, they have identified a work or a multiple works that need to be accomplished and they have appointed these gentlemen, deacons, who can serve in that capacity and who are thus a great blessing to the church at large. Certainly one of the things to highlight then near the bottom is just like all the other offices that the New Testament describes, the elder, the evangelist, the deacon, none of them are those that are just title holders, are they? You know, a man can't just serve as a preacher by title only. There's a work that he needs to be doing. And the same is true of an elder and of a deacon. And so I invited each of us to notice in light of this example in Acts chapter 6 and that pattern set before us in 1 Timothy chapter 3, notice it says they use the office of a deacon well. 
That is to say, they invest in that work they've been given to do and they ensure that it's carried out faithfully and appropriately and in a blessed way. But when they, of course, have done that well, what a commendation the Word of God rests upon them. They purchase to themselves a good degree. Just think about how blessed the church is to have deacons. Men who can carry out these tasks, and often it goes behind the scenes, almost unnoticed. But oh, what work is done. How needful is it? How important is it? And how thankful we are for it. I read a moment ago from that chapter in 1 Timothy 3 about the qualifications. And surely they are those connected to solemnity, to gravity, to faithfulness. Isn't it true that there are many times in which a deacon needs to be a trustworthy man? Maybe the elders delegate some amount of the budget to him so that that work over which he, in fact, has critical part is carried out. He would need to be able to use the Lord's monies trustworthily and in a way that's responsible as a good steward of those things. That's just one example. As you close that particular slide with me, it really does motivate us to look briefly at the next one as well, in which we just finish this particular set of comments like this. It's certainly true that in some congregations, this work of a deacon might well extend beyond what could be true of some other particular circumstances. And I say that because of those seven men that were selected there in Acts chapter 6, you and I read about two of them in a rather extensive set of ways later in the book of Acts. I mention for you both Philip and Stephen, both of which were not only skilled at what we would regard there in Acts chapter 6 as taking care of those widows in need, but they were rather prominent proclaimers of the Word of God. Think about what Philip accomplished as he came into the area of Samaria in Acts chapter 8. And what furthermore about Stephen in that unforgettable scene in which he so boldly proclaimed the message of truth there in Acts chapters 6 and 7. And so surely in the wisdom of elders, they may well have a number of possible works as they recognize what talents a man may have, as they recognize the other things he may accomplish. They may have some very powerful works that he can do to serve that local congregation and to serve certainly the nature of the God of heaven. I hope as we've given some thought to that first question, this nature of deacons and the role that they play, we've been given a reminder about how the Word of God addresses that thought and brings us to realize, again, the blessedness attached to the role of the deacon. What about question number two? This question reads as follows. It seems that Satan was originally an angel of God, but that he chose to sin and was cast out of heaven. Since there was sin in heaven at that time, does that mean that there can be sin in heaven once the saved enter there after the day of judgment? Isn't that a thoughtful question? And certainly one that you and I might have an interest in considering. This next slide will at least move us in some of the directions connected to it. I think you and I can imagine the question. You and I know the greatness of God, and we appreciate the character connected to not only His power and almightiness, but the feature of the absoluteness connected to His being. And yet, the Word of God seems to give us an indication that there was a rebellion in heaven at one time. There were some angels who chose to sin. 
And so the person who asked the question simply asked, can that happen again? Once the day of judgment, for instance, has passed and the saved are in heaven, could there again be rebellion? Let's give some attention to that question. Building up to it by virtue of several of those passages which you now see before you. First of all, may I suggest that the, gen that the person who asked the question was right on target. As far as the available evidence that we have from the Bible, the origin of Satan indeed is an angel, a being in heaven who chose to rebel, who chose to transgress, who chose to be discontent with his status. Would you turn with me to the book of Jude? In fact, we'll only read one or two verses in that little one-chapter book, but in it could I point you to verses 5 and 6? Jude, verses 5 and 6, they read like this. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not, and the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. The point is well stated. And would you please be impressed with me? This is not some poetic description. It's not a figurative one. Notice Jude's point is an encouragement and a very strong one at that to those to whom he wrote to ever be faithful in light of the possibility that those who once were faithful lapsed from that faithfulness. One of the first examples he lists. Don't you know that angels sinned? They were faithful at one time, and yet by some method of approach and some way of thinking, they chose something else. The only information he gives us is they were not happy with their first estate. We surely learn in that that there is a hierarchy, there is an order, if you please, of angels. In other words, there are some that are on the lower rung of the ladder of angels, and there are some that, are, that occupy a higher place, and others an even higher place. Isn't it true? In the Bible, we are told about archangels. We are, in fact, given record of names of some of them. But at this particular time, you'll notice in that passage, it says, they left their own habitation. They apparently desired that status that was higher than the one that they occupied. And in so doing, they sinned. Now, Peter also has comments to make about that. Would you be turning to 2 Peter chapter 2? And we'll notice verse number 4 in that chapter. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment... May I again point out this is not a figurative or poetic section of the Bible. It is a statement that points out rather directly to those to whom Peter wrote that there were false teachers, that there were false prophets, and that they needed to be aware of them. And the way he highlights it is he uses these examples. He mentions the angels sinned, and they were cast down and they're reserved in, in darkness under chains unto the judgment of the great day point is, again, it's important to appreciate the fact that there was a law in heaven. I say that for this reason. If there's no law, there can't be sin. 
because sin is the transgression of the law. That means that there was a law, a set of laws, if you please, in heaven, and some number of the angels weren't happy with the laws. And they chose to disobey them. And they chose to thus live in a way that was not consistent with them. And God judged them as guilty of that rebellion. And you'll notice in 2 Peter 2, 4, that the text expressly says they're reserved unto judgment. As you keep that idea in mind, on that slide I've invited you to notice then that that existence of law in heaven and the fact that even the angels had the opportunity to either obey it by choice or to disobey it by choice. And some of them chose to disobey. I hope that that highlights in all of us how interested God is in personal choice. He doesn't force anybody to obey Him, even the angels. But He urged them to do so. And He set before them the blessedness if they did. But He did allow even them to make the choice. And some of them, including apparently the devil, chose not to obey. You'll notice you're at the bottom of that slide. In that rebellion, it would certainly appear that Satan was not successful in his interest in acquiring that higher status. Again, Revelation gives us an image in Revelation 12 about the devil being defeated, the devil being overwhelmed and overcome. And if you and I will use that at least as a principled pattern, we understand even today how important it is to realize the devil's rebellion was not successful. Shouldn't that teach us any rebellion against God is not going to be successful? For that reason, I ask you to note this. Satan cannot defeat God. He didn't do it then, and he won't do it later. In Mark 3, verse 22, he is called the strong man, admittedly. But there's a stronger one than him. And so he cannot defeat God, nor will he ever. But surely that is another reminder that after his defeat, he took out his critical interest on those that God loves the most. Satan knows he's never going to win the final war. He knows he's already been shackled and defeated. But his goal is to hurt and damage God as much as possible by harming the ones God loves most, his prized creation, human beings. And so the devil wants to take as many to hell with him as he can. It's easy to see that the vast majority of the world he has. But who he does it is the church. It's no wonder that he has a critical interest in the church, you and me. Those are the ones that he not only doesn't now have, but he wants so critically. For that reason, at the bottom of that slide, could I point out that some verses that the Bible mentions to us in great strength are these. Be sober, be vigilant. For your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Isn't it interesting to observe that lions are rather ferocious creatures? If you're like me, you don't really even feel comfortable going to the zoo and having this big glass plate between you and them. I have an expression, I have a feeling that if one of them wanted to do some damage to that glass, he probably could. But the fact is, there is a lion in essence on the loose. He walks about as a roaring lion. His interest is to devour. 
His interest is to overwhelm and to overcome. His interest, you see, is not that which is in your best interest or mine. No wonder Jesus said in John 8 verse 44, He's a liar and He has been from the beginning. He does not tell you the truth. He does not come out and express what His ultimate desire is. He will kind of sugarcoat it. He will try to make it appear different than what it actually is. And when the aftermath is inappreciated, it's often too late. He's a murderer. You'll notice the Lord was very clear about that language, wasn't He? Finally, in Zechariah 3, verses 1 and following, we are given an Old Testament image. The high priest was one who clearly had a great interest, you would suppose, in upholding the things of truth, in upholding what was in the interest of God. But yet, Zechariah saw this. Not only was there the high priest, there was one standing beside him opposing what the high priest stood for. Who was it? The text says it was Satan. You see, Satan is going to try his best, just like he did in the Old Testament, to bring lesser in appreciation in your mind and mine everything that godliness stands for. And that includes the church. It is with all that being said. The next slide will perhaps revisit directly some of the features on that question. And it reminds us about this. You and I know that the avenue that Satan thus employs is the matter of temptation. That is to say, he agitates or at least excites the passions within us that leads to lust. Isn't that what the way James expressed it in James chapter 1 beginning in verse 13? Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempteth he any man, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Now, you and I know that that concept of temptation links to this word tempter. And the devil is called the tempter. Isn't that what he's called when the Lord was tempted of him there in Matthew chapter 4? And it also observed then that in 1 Corinthians 7, it is he who may well enter into the fact of a marriage and tempt the husband or the wife. Surely in all those ways, we see this concept of temptation reminding us that the question that's been asked is an exceedingly good one. If there was sin in heaven then, due to the opportunity of some to rebel, is that going to continue to be the case? Once all the saints come home to glory, will there still be the opportunity? You may notice about the middle of that slide and going forward, you and I are told that following that day of judgment, when that verdict of sweetness is heard, and the righteous are ushered into that eternal abode of heaven, we notice in Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46, a reminder there that that place is eternal, and those that were faithful will be granted entrance and their abode for all eternity will be there. But the question now leads me to say this, can there be a future rebellion in heaven? Apparently, the answer to that question is no. I say that based on a couple of passages of Scripture. Let's notice them in order. First of all, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Here the Lord was on earth. 
that rebellion that had taken place in heaven was some distant point in the past by that time. But in light of it, Jesus, may remember he said, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. That would lead me to conclude that at the time the Lord made that expression and that statement, that the Lord's will was completely followed in earth, for Jesus prayed that it would be that way upon earth. It would appear then that that rebellion, that opportunity had passed. But that isn't the only text. I've invited you to also notice this one. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 18, the closing verse to that chapter, you may recall beginning in verse 13 of that chapter, that Paul had described and discussed a rather unforgettable scene. It was a scene connected, you see, to the fact that there was coming that amazing day of the Lord's return. We all know that. We, in fact, anchor our hope in the thought of it and that which connects to it. But Paul there wrote, The dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. We will ever be with the Lord. You may notice there is an adverb that highlights an unending thing, a matter of no ending duration. We shall forever be with the Lord. I would point out then that apparently the justified, the sanctified, the faithful that enter that place seems to be described in such a way that the kind of rebellion that once was the case apparently will no longer be possible. But the person who asked that question I'm sure had the following thoughts in mind. If that be true, then what might that say about our entrance into that place? May I point out to you that that's why heaven is often said to be a prepared place for a prepared people. Those who have second thoughts about the Lord, those who have some doubtful disputations and questions connected to Him and service to Him, they won't make it there. Those that are the dedicated, the convicted, those that are committed to the nature of the Lord. Those that have placed the kingdom first, Matthew 6, 33. Those that have loved the Lord with all their being, Mark 12, verse 30. Those who in fact put their hands to the plow and didn't look back, Luke 9, verse 62. They're the ones, you see. They've already made their mind up. And they want more than anything else to serve the Lord and to be with Him and to worship Him through the unending ages of all eternity. You see, those are the ones that you and I find the description of. Is it any wonder we're often reminded about the harmfulness of doubt and the harmfulness of questioning the nature of the Lord? You may notice you're at the bottom of that slide that when we come to the last two chapters of the Bible, we have another set of facts that really touch this question. Remember, it was a great question. Can there be rebellion in heaven? Would you give at least a panoramic view with me to the last two chapters of the Revelation? You remember, John, what you see, write in a book, I saw the new Jerusalem come down out of heaven, the holy city, Revelation 21.1. And in the verses that follow, the description was of a place without sorrow, without crying, without pain or sorrow or death. But it was a place where there were no liars and no fornicators. And it was a place without those, you see, 
that were given to the kind of activities which the devil would encourage. You may remember it was a place in which there was no need for the temple, no need for any particular source of light like the sun. And then this interesting refrain is given in Revelation 21, verse 27. Nothing that defiles will be allowed to enter. That word defile means to mar, to tarnish, to remove from the ecstasy and glory which should be incumbent with it. John says nothing like that will enter there. May I point out, if there's no defilement there, then there's no mental movement in the direction of a rebellion. There's nothing that would cause that kind of activity to be. I would suggest that one of the things that surely was learned by those other angels in heaven is what happened to those that did rebel. Isn't that one of the grandest of the things that can teach us something? When you were little, if your brother or sister got in trouble and you saw them get a whipping, wasn't it a little bit of a motivation not to do what they had done? That worked pretty well for me. I'm sure it may well have worked for you. But you notice those angels that rebelled and were cast down and are reserved in judgment, those other angels that witnessed that, don't you think that was an additional motivation for their faithfulness and their complete loyalty in every way to God and His law? I have to believe that it was. By the same token, that surely would help us then see that the rebellion, as far as we're able to tell, was an event that happened at that time at some point in the far distant past, but that today that is no longer possible and shall not be possible once you and I enter that glorious place after the day of judgment. I find it somewhat interesting that not only do we read about it in that book of Jude and also Second Peter, I didn't mention it earlier, but even Job highlighted it. In Job chapter 4 verse 18, Notice there, even Job had knowledge of the reality of angels which chose to misbehave. They chose to act in a way that they shouldn't. And not only that, later in the book it was mentioned again in Job 15, verse number 15. As you and I conclude that particular question, isn't it a rather amazing scene that it brings us to question number three? This particular question will in fact relate somewhat to the one that we've just discussed, but it'll do so in this rather direct way. What is the final abode of Satan? It's likely that you and I have a, a good sense of the answer to that one, though I would ask that we look somewhat at the Word of God in relation to it. First of all, might we be mindful of the fact that the Word of God does say that there is a place prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, verse 41. So notice, there is a place. This is not a figment of anybody's imagination. It is not some kind of abode that's only better thought about. It's real. And there are beings, in this case at least, the devil and his angels, that shall be cast there. A place for the devil and his angels. One of the first things you and I can quickly observe Mankind, it's not the case. Man was intended to be in this place. He was prepared for the devil and his angels. But the Word of God certainly and rather blessedly leads us to notice a few more things. First of all, in that very passage, Matthew 25, 41, Jesus Himself, in description of it, said it is a place of everlasting fire. 
that tells us something about the place. It's a place which fire never burns out. It's a place where fire is not quenched. It's a place where fire flames onward and onward. Everlasting fire. I would offer the thought that you and I can be a bit thankful that we have additional passages like Revelation 20, verse number 10. This is the one that was read earlier in our hearing tonight. May I direct your thoughts to that one? Revelation 20, verse number 10. That chapter, rather sadly, is one that has served as a source of some controversy. In fact, you may often hear many refer to that and use it to prop up premillennialism and say, well, there it is, the thousand-year reign is in that chapter. May I point out that though the words thousand years does occur in that chapter, it is not a reference to what many will tell us it refers to. To leave that aside for the moment, would you look at verse 10 with me? And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. May I make several observations? First of all, we notice that there was a place prepared for the devil and his angels. Notice who else is there, or at least who in description. It is here said that the beast and the false prophet are cast where that devil is. You begin to see that the angels of the devil include the beast and the false prophet. In other words, those that would teach falsehood and those that would not be consistent with truth are among the emissaries of the devil. They're among those who would teach and who would instruct and who would lead men astray from the truth of the Bible. Besides all of that, it then in that same verse says it's a lake of fire. Remember, Jesus had referred to it as everlasting fire, but now the word brimstone is added. Fire and brimstone. Brimstone, as you and I know, is a kind of substance that in encourages flammability. It is that which can burn with great flaming consideration. In addition to that, it says they shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. It's a place, you see, where this punishment, this kind of result never ceases day or night. May I point out that although we're discussing eternity in that connection, isn't it interesting that this phrase day and night is still employed to highlight the nature of that continuing existence? It is with that said, I close that slide like this, and I hope that it will encourage you and me to think of it like this. Could I invite you to note a parallel? Human beings sin, but we have an opportunity to have sins forgiven. Angels sinned, and they were given no plan of salvation. There was nothing the angels were told that they could do to have that particular choice of theirs forgiven. Would you please think about that? It is something to behold. You and I sin, but God is happy to forgive those sins. But when those angels, including the devil, when he chose to sin, it was a one-time thing. There was no going back. You've often thought with me about what happened in the days of Julius Caesar. When you crossed the Rubicon, sometimes we'd still use that phraseology today to highlight 
a decision for which there are consequences that cannot be undone. Now, there's a lot of things in life like that. But may I say to you that when that angel and the bunch that followed him chose to sin, they crossed the Rubicon. There was no going back. There was no way to have those sins forgiven. There was no way to have their position with God reunited. I say it that way because in Hebrews chapter 2, that's exactly the way it's presented. Jesus did not die for angels. Listen to me. Jesus did die for you and me. We as sinners can have our sins forgiven. And what a delightful thought it is. But He didn't die for angels. His blood wasn't shed for them. There is no church, if you please, of which they can be a part. When they sin, it was eternity. You and I today, thus, have a plan of salvation to which they do not have access. A plan of salvation that is not acceptable, accessible by them. As you and I close that particular question and close our lesson tonight, we've looked at three questions, and they have related to the following. First, deacons. The nature and role of the work of deacons. And we were reminded of some of the things the Word of God shares with us about that. Secondly, the nature of the rebellion in heaven. And can that happen again? Thankfully, apparently not. As far as the final abode of Satan, it's a place we don't want to go. But isn't it true that we can end up there? Because notice the false prophets are there. When John wrote the book of 1 John... Isn't it another reminder thus that false prophets can have many to follow them and they'll end up right where those false prophets are. Those false teachers, in fact, find their dwelling place. So tonight, let's offer the beautiful invitation of the Lord. When Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. He issued to one and all the greatest of all invitations. And tonight, we extend the same. If there will be anyone in this assembly who perhaps upon reflection of your life has come to realize that you are not in the safe confines of the Lord, it could be one of two things. Maybe you've never become a Christian though you realize you have sinned and you know Jesus died for you and you know His blood was shed for you and you know what you need to do. We want you to know that as you come forward tonight in such a condition as that, we would rejoice with you. And we would celebrate with you. And it would be a moment for all eternity that would be changed for you because your name would be in the book of life after you're baptized tonight. If you believe on the Lord, would you not repent of your sins and confess His name and be baptized? If though you have known the walk of Christianity and you perhaps for some time knew the strength of it and you were an amazing example to many other people, but maybe over the course of time, you have weakened. Your attention began to be diverted from the Word of God to other things. And your faith has now become only a shell of what it once was. Don't you know that that could be remedied? Jesus is still as loving of you as He ever was. And His blood that was shed for you is still shed for you. 1 John 1 verse 7 says that blood can again cleanse your sins. And tonight, we'd be honored to assist and to help. If you'd repent of those sins and confess them, He has promised to forgive them. And tonight, we would be honored to petition God in the interest of that forgiveness and to do so just like they did in Acts chapter 8, verses 20 to 22. 
tonight, if we could be of some help. Brother Kale has chosen this song of encouragement. Won't you come? While together we stand and while we sing.